Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. Uh, My co-host is Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Marv. How are you? Okay. And I'm Alvin Goldfried. And today we're going to try to uh, clarify the distinction between common factors uh, across different therapies and common principles of change. Um, So, Alan, it's not clear to you at all. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of dumb when it comes to making distinctions, so I'm I'm here to learn. Okay. So the notion of common factors is kind of a a generic um, recognition that maybe there's similarities across different orientations. And uh, the advocate, original advocate for this was Bruce Wampold, who pointed out that in meta-analyses, it was hard to find differences in the effectiveness of different approaches to therapy, therefore leading to the question, are there similarities? Now, to some extent, it's it's a legitimate starting point, but it could be because the uh, research is really not that great in finding differences. You know, if you randomly assign something a patient with depression to uh, cognitive therapy and randomly assign somebody else to therapy that involves behavior change, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're being matched. So you just can get a lot of error variance and no difference between the two. But, you know, so, but but that, be that as it may, this was the, uh, one of the early uh, rationales. And then the other one was, um, reference to one of your favorite people, Jerome Frank. And he's uh, pointing out that different approaches to therapy, plus other ways of influencing shamans, religious uh, um, uh, individuals, who, religious leaders, uh, may all have something in common in creating a sense of morality, of, of a better morale and happiness and hope and things like that. So the common factors that were proposed essentially was the re- it's the relationship and it's the ability of the relationship to engender hope and good feelings, period. That's common factors. With common principles, there's no period. It's semicolon. <laughs> there's more than just the relationship and the expectation. So far, 
so good. I haven't, you know, spelled out yet, but are you with me? No, but go ahead. Okay. Um, so what more is there? Well, what more is there with common principles is the process whereby therapies of different orientations increase awareness about something related to the patient's problems and functioning. So you can call it insight, you can call it decentering. Fritz Perls wrote about awareness as being the key to therapy. So it's what you become aware of, whether it's a thought or a behavior or a feeling, but awareness is a common part in the expression or don't part in the expression, a principle that doesn't exist in common factors. You see, it homes in more on the process of change rather than generally saying, well, we all do the same thing. Are you saying that, let me see if I can summarize what I think you're saying, but I'm not sure I get it. You're saying that in your definition, your narrow definition of common factors, that you include within that narrow definition of common factors only two things. One, the relationship aspects, and two, remoralization. Yeah. Whereas in your much broader definition of common principles, you look for everything but relationship and remoralization that may be common across different treatments that help those treatments be effective? No, not all but, but including that. It goes beyond that. It acknowledges, yes, the therapy alliance is essential and expectations for change and motivation are essential, regardless of therapy. So those are principles of change. Okay, what are the others then? And the, the other, another one would be um, providing corrective experiences, which is the behavioral part of the therapeutic intervention. There's the cognitive part, there's the, the behavioral part. So it adds these other two components what are the other two? Collective experience and awareness of increasing why, awareness of why your life is not working, and providing, assisting the patient in changing those factors that are causing their life to not work. And then, concomitant with that, and as a result of it, the corrective emotional experience. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying there are four elements that are common. Right. Relationship, remoralization, at least awareness yeah. and corrective emotional experience. Yes. And I agree completely with that. Okay. Now there's even more. The only thing I don't understand is what the usefulness is of distinguishing two of them as common factors and two as common principles. To me, all four are very important in every therapy. That institutions should be teaching therapists that these four things are what make them useful to patients. We agree completely on the four things. It's just I don't see the purpose of splitting them into two and two versus seeing all four as being either common factors or common principles. I wouldn't care which. Here's, here's what is in the common fact common factor literature. It's the saying, all have won and all have, must have prizes. Right. The implication of that is... Just continue on your merry way and do what you what you have been doing up to now. Yeah, I got it doesn't you. make a difference. I got you. Okay. It's an important so your, your conceptualization helps precisely in what way to go beyond that. Yes. Um, it doesn't it doesn't move the field ahead anywhere. 
But how does it change the therapist's behavior? No, it doesn't. No, I'm saying you're by dividing principles from common factors. How does that change therapist's behavior? Let's just stay a little bit longer on 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 common factors. Okay. Uh, remember, the rationale for that is there is no difference in effectiveness across orientations. I'm not quite sure that that's a fully accurate statement. I think it depends. In treating simple phobias, there's a, there's a difference. Yeah, we agree completely. Why is the statement made? Well, it depends on how you define psychotherapy. And you have what you have to remember is the year in which uh, Frank's uh, published his book, 1961, which meant he wrote it in 59 or 60. In 59 or 60, what was the primary therapy? It was psychodynamic therapy. Everybody knew basically, at least in a, more or less, what it involved. You didn't have behavior therapy. You didn't have CBT. You didn't have well. You had Gestalt therapy, but those that was very fringy. So. The notion of what Franks was talking about worked with a limited definition of what constituted psychotherapy. No, I agree completely. So that we, the idea that all of one would have to be amended by the fact that that would be a generalization across all patients, all therapies, but that there would be specific patients and specific therapies that were better matched to each other. Exactly. If we took a finer grained look at it. Okay. And this is where the key implication of common principles comes, uh, comes to bear. The technique that is used for the patient, for the most part, has been determined by the theoretical orientation, rather than the factors that need to be changed in the specific patient. So what a therapist does comes from the school of thought rather than those factors that the patient needs to become aware of or needs to change, really increased awareness or corrective experience. So the essence of therapy really is they need to know what's causing the problems in their life and then have a means by which these can be changed. And that's a function of, of theory, of school of thought, rather than individual case formulation, at least according to the literature. You know, practicing clinicians, we know, eventually cross over into different orientations because the one orientation is not enough. So here we, here we have a kind of a split between what is known in the research literature and what goes on in, in clinical practice. You look, you, you're staring with a blank look. Well, no, I, I'm trying to put this into understanding how I would see this clinically with a given patient. If I have you right so far, then... What you're saying is that what classically went into the concept of common factors, that is the relationship and the um, remoralization, yes. would be useful across all therapies yes. and with all patients. Yeah. But that when we get down to individual patient needs, the way of creating the circumstances for the best corrective emotional experience and the most important increased awareness that different techniques with different patients might be more effective than others, that you're not having the sort of uh, overall generalization that everything works equally with everyone, everyone has run, everyone has to, has won, that you, when you get to what you call principles, that that's where you get greater specificity trying to match specific technique 
to specific patient need and personality. By God, you've got it. Okay, took <laughs> yeah. me a while. You've got it. Um, so let, let's let's get a concrete example. Uh, there was a, was a, a clinical trial comparing psychodynamic therapy with CBD, CBT in the treatment of panic disorder. Okay, this was you know done at your old haunt, you know New York Presbyterian and uh, uh, and Penn State. Uh, and the, what the results showed is that both worked pretty well, but CBT was a little bit better. And the thing I liked about the psychodynamic approach was that they included a focus on anger rather than just anxiety, which is what CBT does. And they focused on anger as a, a cause of panic. Why? Because of theory. It's sex or aggression. So they focused on sexual conflicts and anger issues. And I'm not sure that the sexual conflicts I, uh, has anything to do with panic disorder, as far as I could say, except theoretically, you know, classical Freudian. But they did include the anger thing, which was interesting because in my clinical work with patients, I have seen anger cause a panic attack in session and also being the contributor to the panic rather than just anxiety. So I've seen that clinically, and my feeling is, well, for some patients, it's what they need. They need to be clear about their anger. They need to recognize its anger. their anger is causing this, they're not gonna die or explode. And also what's the reason for the, their anger? And this is not anything that you find in CBT. So far. So far, right except depending on the individual therapist. So here's where the principle notion becomes important. If you agree that there's a principle of providing awareness and corrective experiences for the treatment of panic, factoring in anger should be a function of the patient's need rather than the school of thought. Well, I, I might see the implication somewhat differently that the, the the very structure of the experiment and of the theoretical thinking that there's one psychodynamic school of thought and another CBT th school of thought, I would see as a historical um, unfortunate accident. Yeah, and that it would and this is what you've worked on for the last forty five years that psychotherapy would have been much better served if it, the different techniques weren't parceled out into different theories and schools of thought and that figuring out what worked for what without the labels would have been a lot better. And if people learn to be broad-based psychotherapists rather than I'm a CBT therapist or I'm a psychodynamic therapist, they would be better therapists and their patients would be better served. Exactly. Yes. But if you say, okay, there are common principles that cut across the, let's keep it, keep it simple. You know, oh, I see. So your common principles also. Let me anticipate you. See if I can do this. I'm like I'm, I'm like a fledgling trying to fly. No, you you are my translator. <laughs> but um, if I have you right, then the common principles would be an integral justification for and foundation for integration as psychotherapy. That once we figure out what the common principles are 
that that would help us to join together what had previously been labeled as radically different schools of thought into one integrated school of thought applying those common principles. Beautifully said. Okay. Beautifully said. And that, and that therapists can do this without feeling that they're betraying their colleagues or feel guilty because it's not in the teachings and textbooks and manuals. Of well, I would, put, I would put it even strong, more strongly in, in, in the um, opposite direction, that therapists should be guilty if they're adhering too closely to one school of thought, that that means that they're missing principles and techniques from other schools of thought, and that they're a hammer always searching out the right nail and then being disappointed when it doesn't work and blaming the patient. So this is your case formulation of for a school of thought and how it can change and become more ecumenical. Exactly. By getting people, by getting therapists to feel guilty and to alleviate their guilt by using something that's going to help the individual patient, even though it doesn't get... And make them feel like instead of being robots following the dictates of a particular school, that they're uh, creative, flexible, and able to integrate and do whatever's right for that patient. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the term robot. I don't... I think, you know, I, I once gave uh, a talk. Uh, the title was Theoretical Schemas to See or Not to See. And it, it really spoke to what we're talking about. And um, if our patients have selective inattention and distort and behave inappropriately based on what they've learned early on, we don't call them robots. We say it's unfortunate. I, I got it. So it's not the poor bastard's fault that they're rigid and inflexible. Well, that, I, I, no, don't say it's easy in your terms, rigid and it. <laughs> no, that's adversarial. That is not going to, from a therapeutic point of view, maybe with the, ex, with the exception of somebody like Albert Ellis, who <laughs> would argue with his patients. I don't think that that's a good scheme for changing patients or for changing therapists. I think that, that to me, it, it's really interesting that theory can help you see more clearly in the way I think your your title was alluding to. But then it can also be a blinder. So it, it, it's a one. It was a wonderful thing in, in my training when suddenly I would be able to understand patients and myself through some theoretical understanding I didn't have before. But then I, I realized the dangerous thing that all of a sudden all of my patients fit that theory. Yeah. I would learn something and I say, oh boy, that applies to me and it applies, to, oh, my next patient applies to me and then my next patient. And I began to realize that whatever was the latest theory that I'd seen helped me see a certain part of the world, but then blinded me to everything else that was more complicated. Yeah. yeah. The theory helps us see, but it can also blind us. That's why I like T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from our exploration, remember that one, until we our exploring and see the place for the first time. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do in, in talking about the implication of principles is that if we, if in training, people start with principles and say, okay, these are the principles of change. And then, and, and there's just a handful of them. So that's good. You know, what's involved with this patient in front of me, which principle, and then 
say, okay, now how can I best implement this principle with a technique? We'll put content on this so that it fits the particular needs of this patient. And here is a principle, and here I have a list of all techniques. And what this does is, if everyone took this seriously, it would dissolve the schools. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And the trouble with that is, it, it, the wonder of that is, the greatness of that is, it would dissolve the schools. But the trouble with that is, it would dissolve the schools, and the schools don't want to be dissolved. No, the book publishers don't want the schools to be dissolved because they can publish more books about different schools of thought. And teachers of a given school of thought don't want it to be dissolved because it would depersonify the teaching into I'm teaching these principles rather than I'm teaching this therapy I invented. Yeah, that's right. It could make several people suffer in their career uh, because they are not the leader of an orientation. It also then conf will confuse therapists. What journals should I apply, uh, subscribe to? Or what conferences should I go to? Or what's my identity? Because that's very important. It, it, it's interesting. I've written about every damn thing in the world. I was almost like um, a generalist to nothing about everything. I've written about ridiculous number of topics in a superficial way. I never wrote papers or books on psychotherapy. And the reason was that it always felt that whatever I did, whatever I knew about psychotherapy, was really just common sense. It never felt that there was anything that original to say because what I believed was just so obvious. Yeah. Well, we like to think that the only way we can know about something is within our profession, you know, whether it's psychiatry, psychology, social work. Um, that's the only way to understand human behavior. Uh, if you read novels and read philosophers, and psychology certainly came from philosophy, you'll see there's an awful lot in there about human behavior, which comes from observation, not controlled trials. So I think, I think things have just gotten muddied. And then, you know, these superstructures... And it's not quite bureaucracies, but the complexities of organizations, of networks, of special interest groups, and you know, various kinds of. Although actually, special interest groups, based on the content of the problem, might be a way out and provide people with an identity. You know, I work with I specialize in therapy with sexual minorities or I work with children, or I work with couples, or I work with panic, uh, or I work with depression. You know, the way different approaches to, to uh, different different uh, specialties in medicine are. I periodically have to get uh, an injection in one of my eyes uh, in order to clarify my vision. It sounds horrible, but it's really very innocuous. And I asked the doctor how does he identify himself and he didn't say i'm a doctor and he spoke he identified himself according to the specialty yeah so the, the professionalization of psychotherapy crystallizing into separate schools 
has been very hard to overcome with this more ecumenical integrationist approach that you've been trying to teach for 50 years. Do you see any changes over the course of time? Yes. I, I see people being more willing to talk to each other in order to understand rather than to um, put down and show you that, you know, my, I'm going to talk to you, Alan, and show you that my view is better than your view. So rather than a uh, combative type of dialogue, I think they're more collaborative. Well, I think my podcasts are probably an example of that. Not probably, I think they are an example of that. Trying to clarify, trying to learn uh, from each other. And the organization um, SEPI, Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration, was co-founded by Paul Wachtel, myself, and then several others uh, back in the early 80s. And the goal there was to uh, to get people to talk to each other. And I think that's... How is SEPI doing? It's, I think it's plateaued. Um, I think more work needs to be done to come up with a consensus. And, you know, uh, principles is one way. It's not the only way. How many members are there in SEPI now? I don't know. Um, it's under 1,000. That, well, that's I, a lot. I don't know specifically. That's a lot. And how often does it meet? Um, there's a conference once a year. There's a newsletter. Um, there are... Uh, regional networks all over the world. So it's very, very international. Uh, and I'm not sure whether the consensus is going to grow out of there as an organization or members who've been inspired by their dialogue as individuals or small groups uh, will work on a, a, a consensus. Is it hard to join? No, it's just a click <laughs> in the right place. Is it expensive? It's inexpensive. And the meetings are once a year. Yeah. Where are they generally held? All over the world. How many people come to them? Uh, usually it's maybe two to three hundred. So it's not huge. It's a good place for really dialoguing one-on-one uh, -on -one or small groups. And the goal, the goal there is to have people learn from each other. Which is so anyone who likes this podcast would probably like to be a SEPI member. It won't cost them much, and it would give them the opportunity when, when it were, was convenient to go to a nice place and go to a very good meeting. Sounds good. So why, why haven't you been working more to get SEPI advertised on this po podcast? Is that a sign of your pathological modesty? <laughs> You and your DSM. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, my friend. No, seriously, why haven't you tried harder to use the podcast? Did that feel like you'd be exploiting the, 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 the people who enjoy it? No, it just didn't occur to me. Well, maybe that's a problem. Well, doctor, do you have an approach uh, to this problem, or have you just solved it? My approach is behavioral. You have to become more uh, promotive. Well, I will model your behavior. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it up. Okay. Great talking to you. Talk okay. to you. Stay next. Bye bye.